Let's just pray together. Lord Jesus, as we study your word, we pray that you will speak to instruct our minds, but also to inspire our hearts, to strengthen our will, and to lead us more into the path of service and of love for you that you want for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that uh, I have the privilege of preaching on this evening, um, in a sense, I'm finding quite difficult because it's a sermon that I need to hear. And I think there's a temptation sometimes when someone stands up in front of you and has the temerity to preach, um, that somehow they've already grasped this and now they're giving it to you. I would like to think as a teacher in the secular world that that was probably at least mostly true. <laughs> um, but in this situation, a sermon is not a lesson. It's an attempt by all of us to put ourselves under the authority of God's word and open ourselves to what the Spirit wants to teach us. And never was that more true for me than this particular passage, which is incredibly challenging. It's a passage which gives insight into how God wants us to be. Not a, a kind of guilt trip, you know, this is how you should be, how you should be better, but where we should start from, what our understanding and our passion should be. And I'm even wondering whether this is a healing service, and I'm hoping that at the end of the service, many of you will feel that it's the right thing to do, to just take yourselves over to that side, and we'll have a team of people who will be willing to pray for you, even if you have to wait while some other people are prayed for first. Um, but I wonder whether healing for us this evening could also be a healing of our hard hearts and a finding afresh of just how amazing it is that Christ loves us. He even likes us that he died for us, um, and that he wants us uh, to experience that love to the very depths of our being. And so we're going to confront that by looking at Paul. Not that Paul was perfect, he was the first to say he wasn't, but by heck he was passionate. And so we're going to look at the passions of Paul. And starting with the situation he was in, I'd love to have more time to just talk you through this amazing story, but you might like to read it in Acts chapters 21 to 28. It'd make a wonderful film. Um, because Paul um, is, goes to Jerusalem where he knows that he is going to face opposition, a bit like Jesus did, uh, and that he's going to be imprisoned. And it's a bit of a long story. He's imprisoned there, then he's taken to Caesarea, and then eventually um, he's taken to, um, uh, to Rome, uh, which is partly his own fault because he decides right at the last minute to appeal to Caesar, which is a Roman citizen. He could do, and the, um, the Roman leader said, oh, it's a shame he did that because we could have let him go. Um, but actually he did, and he felt that that was the right thing to do, and he's ended up um, in Rome under house arrest, waiting for a, some very capricious leaders to decide whether or not to deal with his case. We've actually heard, haven't we, of political leaders and of detained people uh, actually being held for a long time under house arrest and not knowing how long for. Um, and he'd lost his freedom. We're told that he was actually in chains. He says that in this passage. I'm in chains, he said. And that could have been extremely uncomfortable and limiting and almost certainly meant he had absolutely no privacy whatsoever. He never knew what was going to happen next. He lived daily in the fear of death. 
There wasn't a, a justice system, anything like one that we would understand. We're told he was frustrated because he couldn't continue his work and he couldn't go and see those lovely people in those new churches that he obviously loved very much. And yet, in the passage, there is no hint of moaning. Paul is rejoicing. In fact, he uses the word rejoicing more than once. He is so full of optimism and rejoicing. And we could easily think, well, it was okay for him. He was Paul. Um, but what about us? I can't get my life into that spiritual state until I've sorted out things, until I've got on top of life. And then perhaps when I've got on top of life, I can actually sort out my spiritual life. Well, that's how I think sometimes anyway, and especially when life is very busy and very demanding, and there are issues that have got to be got through before we can actually focus on Christ. I'm even like that on a day-to-day -day basis. I find it really hard to sit down and have a quiet time until everything's washed up, put away, tidy, and sorted. And that's a kind of metaphor for how I think we sometimes are in our lives. And yet, you know, it was different for Paul. It's almost as though he started with his mind in a very different place. He starts in verse 12 by saying, what's happened to me has served to advance the gospel. Isn't that amazing? I'm here imprisoned. I'm in chains. I don't know what's going to happen next. I could die tomorrow. I could be flogged. Anything could happen. But do you know what? I'm rejoicing. Verse 20, I expect and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that I'll have sufficient courage so that whether I live or die, Christ will be exalted. Clearly, Paul has a very different take on suffering to me. And he has a very different take on a fear of death, on the purpose of life, and on who God is and what God can do. So what is so different about him? It seems to me, as I read this passage, that what's different about Paul is that he has a passion for Christ. And he has a passion for the gospel. And so I just want to look briefly, if you like, at, Paul, at Paul's two passions. And if you actually think about it, it's not too far from our church vision statement. He, his passion was in knowing Christ and in making him better known. He says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. We'll come on to the second bit. To live is Christ. Um, in chapter 3, um, which we seem to be studying Philippians in bits and bobs, which is fine. It's all over the place. It's a wonderful letter to study all over the place. But I think we've already looked at chapter 3. But Paul um, says this in Philippians chapter 3, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. I want to know Christ. And that word know is incredibly powerful. His passion is to know Christ to really know him. Now, I find this really hard um, because I find it much easier to know about Christ and to understand more about the theology of the incarnation and the um, and redemption and the resurrection. Um, I love reading those books. I chime totally with um, Jane Williams, the wife of the previous Archbishop of Canterbury who came here to speak to women clergy, um, not just at Emmanuel, but the local women clergy. And she said, 
when I feel far from God, I do theology. And I just love that, because that's where I am, really. I just want to, to read and to understand more. But do you know what? I'm beginning to realize at my advanced age, it's not enough. I can remember how much more simple it was when I first became a Christian and I gave my life to Christ. I was 14. And I could wake up in the morning and sort of say, hello, Jesus. <laughs> and it seemed so simple. And phrases like, I have invited the Lord Jesus into my heart, actually made more sense in a way than they do after I've studied theology <laughs> because it was so simple. And Jesus was there with me and still is with me, but I find it much harder to tap in to that reality and that real closeness and that knowing as opposed to knowing about, which is so important. And that's why Paul was so different because he knew Christ. He walked with Christ. He had Christ on his mind, in his heart. Everything about what he was doing was about Christ, not in some kind of rather batty way, um, but in a completely fulfilled way. I've been picking up all sorts of odd things. You get weird things on Facebook about mindfulness and about um, peaceful living and about getting an app that'll play you nice music and show you a nice picture and everything's going to be fine. Um, but uh, we're very into, aren't we, wanting to find peace and serenity and to face all the turbulence of life with a kind of underlying calm. And that's what Paul had, not as some kind of gimmick, but as the total reality of knowing who he was before the beginning of all time, known and loved by Christ and made one with Christ. He says in Colossians, my life is hid with Christ in God. And so, the whole of his life now had a different focus. That was why he could be so different, even when he was in prison. And another occasion, actually, in Philippi, where he's writing this lesson to, letter to, he and Silas were singing hymns in prison, and that was probably a much worse prison than being under house arrest. And we come tonight, all of us, with our version, if you like, of the prison. It might be worries about money or about family or relationships or whether we've got enough time or energy. It might be worries about the future because none of us knows what lies there, whether it's the global future or the national future or the personal future. We come with our baggage. And my prayer for myself and for all of you tonight is that somehow as we bring this baggage and then come closer to the Lord Jesus, that we'll find more of that way of dealing with life, which honours God by its dependence on him and its ability to find peace, even when life is difficult. So we're going to stop for a minute. I quite like doing these reflections in the middle rather than just at the end. We're going to just stop for a minute, and we're going to have a minute's quiet and reflect on all that Jesus is inviting us into. So let's just do that, that I might know him. Lord Jesus, I love you, and I know that you love me. Please let these loves move deep into my heart 
so that I might know deeply that I am loved and I might be set on fire with love for you, assured that I am safe in you, ready to go wherever you take me. Amen. And on to Paul's second passion, which is his passion to share the gospel. He looks at his present situation and he rejoices. Why is that? Because amazingly, even under that situation, the gospel has had a whole new lease of life. The palace guard, those people who probably changed guard, I don't know how, every so many hours in looking after him, he was able to, I mean, they didn't have much way of getting away, did they? They were chained to him. Talk about having to hear the gospel. Um, they heard and they saw. And they saw Paul's communication with his friends who were trying to support him in Rome. And they saw the quality of that friendship and that family life. And they saw the quality of Paul's faith. And so I wonder how many in Rome came to faith because of the witness of Paul during that time of imprisonment. The church in Rome became very important. We know it, don't we? The Catholic Church began in Rome. Rome became a great centre of the early Christian church. And one wonders how many of those were descendants of those who heard the message from an imprisoned Paul. More than that, in verse 14, he tells us, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Once you see somebody doing it, it's easier for you to do it. And you think, right, this is what we're doing. Could this be us? As we tell people about our crazy new vicar who's been bold enough to go public with a vision for dozens of people coming to faith in the coming year, that if everyone else is doing it, we're going to have to do it, aren't we? <laughs> and that's, I think, what Paul was saying here. You know, well, I'm doing it and other people are doing it. You're all now being emboldened to do it more. What a wonderful verse that is. And so here's Paul in prison. He could be killed, he could be tortured, he could be flogged. And yet, instead of saying, oh, I'm just so worried, and it's just so awful, and I'm sure he did sometimes, let's not get him on too high a pedestal. He was passionate that people should come to this same knowledge of Christ. And so for us, we need to ask ourselves, do we see it as important to bring people to know Jesus? not just to be bums on seats in this building, at one or other of its many manifestations, but to actually know Jesus. And why did Paul want them to know Jesus? Because he knew the heart of Jesus, and when he saw the people around, he knew that Jesus loved them, and that he, he wept because they had no time for him. And if we could feel that about our friends and our neighbours and the people that we know, how Jesus must be reaching out in love and longing for them, then our love for him perhaps just might, and believe me, I'm preaching this to myself far more than to you, that that love might just put a bomb under us and set us out boldly to say, do you know what? This is my story. Verses 15 to 18 told he says some people preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill the latter do so out of love knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel but it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry but others out of goodwill and then he says but what does it matter the important thing is that in every way uh, Christ Jesus is being preached 
Now, I don't think here he was talking about people who were preaching another gospel because he said some very, very strong things about them in many of his other letters. If someone comes to you with another gospel, don't have anything to do with them. And I don't think either it was those who were what they called the Judaizers, those who were wanting people to be circumcised before they could become a Christian, even if they weren't Jews already, because he called them dogs. So, in another in another letter. So I don't think it was that sort of thing. I think it was more a bit of party politics. You know, people were saying, I'm a Paul person, and people were saying, well, no, Paul's in prison. You know, let's do it differently. And there was a bit of what you might call inter-church disagreement, and people were possibly had wrong motives. They wanted to fill the church because it was their thing rather than because it was our thing. Now, let's be humble enough to say that happens in many of our churches. There are rivalries and differences. They're not differences over the gospel. They're not differences over what it means to be a Christian. But they can sometimes cause damage. And Paul says, look, let's not get those things too seriously because what matters is that the gospel is being preached. And if people are hearing the gospel and coming to faith, really does it matter what music we're singing? Really does it matter how we do it, what we wear? What matters? It might matter in a sense of our taste and our preference and our feelings of comfort or discomfort, but Paul's saying, do you know what? As long as Christ is being faithfully preached, then we can rejoice. The truth matters. The means of salvation matters. Style, whether I love it or not, doesn't matter. And we need to have a generous spirit that cares only that Christ is proclaimed and that lives are changed. So, another moment for reflection. How can I be more eager to share? Can we ask the Holy Spirit to pour into our hearts just a longing that at least one or two other people that we know, five people, will come to know Christ. Lord Jesus, I picture one person who I just long to see come to know and love you. I picture you reaching out to them, sad because they're not bothered, longing that they would be very bothered and that they would come to you. I pray that you will show me who else I should be praying for to make up a pack of five that I will pray for daily. Holy Spirit, set me on fire with a passion to tell others about you. Amen. And then another passion, another longing of Paul's. His longing is to be with Christ. Paul doesn't know when it's going to happen, but in verse 21 he says, for me to live is Christ. We've done that bit. To die is gain. He even goes on to this kind of dilemma. You know, I think actually I'd rather die because then I would go to be with Christ. I think I've probably said this to you before from, uh, from this place, but someone said to me once at a very untimely funeral, I never know whether to be heartbroken or jealous. 
I found that so hard. Someone with such a confidence that to die was to go to be in the arms of Christ, that there was this longing to do so. Paul is facing death and uncertainty, and yet he says, I'd rather go, actually, but because you need me and God's still got work for me to do, then I'll stay. Well, I think at this point we might say, come on, Paul, get real. (laughs) Nobody feels like that. None of us wants to die. None of us wants to be bereaved. None of us knows how to face death with that kind of assurance and confidence. And perhaps we never will. But he knows he still has work to do to serve the Christians, to preach the gospel, to be fruitful for God. He doesn't know how long for, but he believes that he will work as long as God has work for him to do. And then he will go to be in the arms of Christ with the one he has known so well. So he says, I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have courage to, that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by my life or by my death. Gosh, I find that so hard. And yet that was what knowing Christ meant to him. I remember hearing a sermon on the disciples in the storm, you know, in the boat, and they said, Master, don't you care, we're going to die. And we look back and we think, well, of course they weren't going to die. They're still going to be disciples and they're going to be martyred and Jesus hasn't got to the cross yet. And we know the end from the beginning, but they didn't. But you see, God does. And we are immortal until God says, okay, time's up. And when God says time's up, it's God's time hard, isn't it? It's also a particularly special lesson for those who, like Paul, know that there might not be that many more months and days and years and decades ahead. To face with confidence and with assurance that every day is lived for Christ, but that at the end of it, he'll be there waiting for us. I'm going to end by reading you a a little passage from a very old Um, interpreter of the word, um, Alec Matea. This book I I bought in 1966. (laughs) Never again will we have the chance to live for Christ through this moment. Never again will we have the chance to please him in this circumstance. Never again will will he be gladdened by the trust in him which we have shown in the face of this day's test. It elates the heart to write these words, and the spirit rises to dedicate itself in love to Christ. For Paul, as he looked at his chain and his flesh worn by its constant chafing and felt his muscles ache with its dragging weight, he resolved, now as always, Christ be glorified in my body. Lord Jesus, we pray that today we will love you more. We pray that today we will love those that you want to call to yourself. We pray that today we will trust you for now and for eternity, for your name's sake. Amen.